I just wanted to come here. To Winkies? This Denny's. Okay. Why this Winkies? It's kind of embarrassing, but... Go ahead. I had a dream about this place. Oh, boy. You see what I mean? Okay. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Well, it's the second one I've had. They were both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, but it looks just like this, except for the light. And I'm scared, like I can't tell you. Of all people, Stanley Kubrick is standing right over there by that counter. He's in both dreams, and he's scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid he is, and then I realize what it is. There's a man in back of this place. He's the one. He's the one that's doing it. He's a movie reviewer, and he wants me to review another movie. I say no, but he just keeps moving closer, and I start screaming, but all that comes out is a projector sound, and then his face. It's everywhere. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face, and I hope I never see that face ever outside of a dream. Hey, Steve, it's time to review Mulholland Drive. Ah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to Late Seating. I am Jason Harding. And I'm Steve Shives. And on this show, we take a classic movie and see if it lives up to its reputation, whether that reputation is good or bad. And this time around, we are going to be reviewing a movie that is considered the height of that particular director's career, would you say? I would say it certainly is. Yeah, at this point in his career, this is, if if not considered his his pinnacle, certainly top two or three. Uh, yeah, That's right. for real. What movie are we going to be reviewing this time? We are going to be reviewing that 2001 uh, surrealistic mystery noir thingy. Avant-garde. Avant-garde, artsy, fartsy film. What could it is be? Is it artsy? It's not really artsy. It's not fartsy, that. Actually, it? it's not artsy fartsy. This 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 particular director is not what I would call artsy fartsy. But I think the strength of Lynch is that while he's doing really surrealistic things, it doesn't feel like snobby artsy fartsy no. shit. No, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. And and <laughs> of course, of course, the film we are talking about, the film which we are reviewing, is David Lynch's masterpiece. Some may say. Mul- many may say. Many may say. <laughs> quite a quite a few people may say actually. Mulholland Drive. Yay! What a fun time! It's like going to the carnival with Grandpa. Yeah. Right. Except he leaves you. He leaves you in the hall of mirrors. Yeah. And then the lights go off, and there's only one calliope left playing, and it's on the other side of the park, and it's broken, and it's this playing thing, and you wander in the dark, and every single reflection is a monster, even though it's just you. Yep. I think that's a good metaphor. It's fun. <laughs> it's definitely not something that happened to me when I was a child. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that, that that didn't happen to you. 
You definitely didn't see a cowboy that said, you'll see me three more times. Oh, good. If you don't make it out of this, this mirror maze. Because if that had happened, that would be terrifying. It would be bad. It would be so bad. Hey, Steve. Yeah? Do you have any trivia for, for Mulholland Drive? I'm so glad you asked, because I had a feeling you might, so I did look up some trivia before we recorded this, yes. Good. Do you want me to tell you what the trivia is? Yes. I'm turning into... We're, we're going to slowly devolve into a David Lynch scene. I want this, <laughs> I want, I, let's try to be as stilted and awkward as possible to create the uncanny valley effect <laughs> of a David Lynch conversation. Um, no, so yes, I do have some trivia about uh, Mulholland Drive. It's, this is um, a movie that went through several sort of stages of evolution before we finally mm-hmm. got to the movie that we actually have. Originally, David Lynch got the idea uh, for what eventually became Mulholland Drive, and but he conceived it initially as a spinoff of Twin Peaks, and the lead character mm-hmm. would have been Audrey Horn, who was Sherilyn Fenn's character in Twin Peaks. But then that fell through. He decided not to do that, or the network wasn't interested, or whatever happened. And so he, he reworked it into its own show that had no connection to Twin Peaks. And mm-hmm. instead of Audrey, that's when he introduced Betty as the lead character. And he shot a pilot, but the pilot was rejected. So then, like a year later, a movie studio called up David Lynch and said, do you want to finish that pilot and just release it as a movie? And he was like, yeah, okay. And so he shot some additional scenes and put a new ending on it. And that is how we got Mulholland Drive. Yay! Um, and there's this. I thought this was interesting because it was originally shot for TV. Um, when the movie was sent to theaters for exhibition, the reels came because this was back in the day when movies actually came to theaters in reels that had to be loaded into projectors. Um, Man, not on someone's thumb. Not drive on a thumb a drive. Yeah, or like or like you know a, a, like a streaming feed or something. Like uh, you actually had the movie physically there, and they came with a note written by David Lynch to the projectionist. Uh, asking that the film be centered differently on the screen than is typical for for a movie in a movie theater, so that there would be more headroom, so that the actors' heads wouldn't be cut off by the edge of the screen, because he had originally framed mm-hmm. it to be shown on um, a, a four to three ratio TV screen instead of a widescreen uh, movie screen. Mm-hmm. And the note was uh, signed, "Your friend David Lynch." <laughs> Which explains the lengths of some of these shots. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, this being a David Lynch movie, one of the questions that a lot of people ask, especially people who maybe aren't as familiar with David Lynch's work or or aren't uh, aren't movie snobs like me and Jason. Um, the, 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 the que- Speak for yourself. <laughs> the question I'm is- a blue collar guy. <laughs> I like my movies straightforward. <laughs> Fuck your metaphors. <laughs> the question is all well. That's the question. The question is always, what does it mean, right? And and David mm-hmm. Lynch has never offered a definitive explanation as to what the film quote unquote really means. Um, but he has told people that this movie does have a coherent narrative. And mm-hmm. and that if you want to figure out what is really going on in the movie or what the story actually is, there are clues, you know, sort of littered throughout. Just watch that, it. That, that Just you can figure out what the movie is really about. So, yeah. Yes. And he's right. There is. I think one of the one of the bigger problems. Oh, fuck it. I'm, screw our structure. Um, <laughs> just like with just like with this movie. Just like with this um, movie. We don't need to adhere to any established norms. Like 
many good artists. He's he leaves it open for individuals' interpretations, mm-hmm. right? But I agree with him. There is a there is a structured story in this movie, um, but it requires more than one watching if you're going to pick up on it, right? Yeah. If you just watch it once and go, I have no idea how what happened. There was there was a cowboy and he he was scary for some reason. <laughs> Couldn't put my finger on why, but damn, I pissed myself yeah. watching that cowboy. But then there are the other people who will unpack every frame of this goddamn movie needlessly. Yeah. Unpack every single frame and question why this, right? Well, why did he pour pink pink paint on her jewelry? Why was what was the significance of the pink paint? And it'd be like, why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> Go outside. Breathe some air, barbecue something. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Get away from this movie. This is a riddle box that can drive you mad if you let it. <laughs> Don't let it. Stop looking for the blue key. There is no blue key. That's just in the movie. <sighs> Are you ready for who made it? Yeah. Are you done with I'm your done. trivia? That's all okay. the trivia I got, Buster. All right. It was directed by David Lynch. And you know him from Racerhead, The Elephant Man, and Blue Velvet, yeah. and Twin Peaks, yeah. and Wild at Heart, and oh boy, what was Lost, Lost Highway? Highway. Jesus. Lots of stuff. He's the only one we got, guys. He's the only one we got. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> Nobody else is doing shit like this. Thank God he's good. <laughs> <laughs> he's been heavily influential in the movie business. People steal from him constantly, not just from sound design, but by the way he frames his shots, and sometimes when it comes to the way he, when he gets to the more esoteric, the more... Um, hallucinatory or dreamlike qualities of almost everything that he's ever done um, people will lift from him and I'm glad for it because uh, yeah oh yeah as far as American filmmakers we don't have too many guys like David Lynn and we don't have anybody who's the closest one do you think oh god I w- what's the who made Tree of Life oh yeah Malik uh, yeah Malik a, has Malick. but Malik is different Malik has surrealistic you know, uh, qualities Malick to his style, but he's a lot different than Lynch. Lynch appreciates the artifice of film, right? Yeah. He's not terribly interested in his stuff looking realist, quote-unquote, realistic. He knows that he's working in a medium that's fake. That's very present in this movie. Oh, yes. that's this It's, is, it's practically, a, it's not even subtext a lot of times. It's, it's text. It's like literally what it's, the movie's about. That's the artificiality. The whole, theater scene, the whole theater scene is about that. Yeah. But this is this is fake. This is artifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and Malik tends to go for. I put dinosaurs in my movie. Why? I just did. <laughs> I wanted to, so I did it. What are you going to do about it? And Terrence fucking Malik. Ah, all right. It was produced by Mary Sweeney. Uh, she has worked on a lot of the Lynch films, and uh, he, she was briefly married to David Lynch. No kidding. Me. Elaine Sard. Uh, she's a French film producer. Neil Edelstein worked with Lynch, and he also produced things like The Ring, the American remake of The Ring. Um, Michael Polaire, nothing. <laughs> Tony Krantz, nothing. That's five, isn't it? No, that's four. It's a lot of producers. I, I can't count. It's a lot of producers. Written by David Lynch. Starring! Okay, guys, there's like 96 people here. Yeah, so, a lot of people uh, in I'm the only movie. Gonna, I'm only going to go in depth with like the main people that appear a lot. Mm-hmm. Naomi Watts. 
as Betty Elm slash Diane Selwyn. Her breakout and role. You know her. Mm-hmm. You know her from Tank Girl and Children of the Corn Four. Oh uh, yes, my favorite Naomi Watts movie, <laughs> other than this, of course. I think from this point forward, if someone's famous enough, I'm going to just highlight their most embarrassing films. <laughs> That's I love that plan. Laura Elena Herring as Rita slash Camilla. And uh, she'll know her from Silent Night, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, and Black Scorpion 2, Aftershock. Yeah. And that awful, awful YouTube movie called The Thinning that starred one of the fucking Paul brothers. Oh, I'm, I, so, I I'm so sorry I that missed hit. that one. <laughs> Justin Theroux as Adam Kesher. And you saw him in Charlie Angel's Full Throttle. Oh, boy. <laughs> And he's been in a lot of other And I think, and he's also a screenwriter. Yes, he is a screenwriter. He does a lot of voice work. He does a lot of, he does a lot of stuff. Ann Miller as Coco. Do I have to? <laughs> Ann Miller, this was her last film. Yes. Um, but holy shit, does she have a lot of films in the classic bygone age of Hollywood, don't she? A legend. Steve? A legend. Absolutely. A lot of musical theater. Yeah. Mark Pellegrino as Joe. Robert Forrester and I Have Five Lines. Oh, my God, Brent, yeah. <laughs> no, Robert Forrester as Detective McKnight. You only see him once, really, yeah. and that's it. Um, Brent Briscoe as Detective Domgard. Dan Hydea as Vincenzo Cascaliani. I hope I said that right. He don't like coffee. No. Uh, <laughs> Angelo Badalamente as Luigi, Luigi Cascaliani. Monty Montgomery as the cowboy, Lee Grant as Louise Bonner, James Karen as Wally Brown, Chad Everett as uh, Jimmy Katz, Richard Green as the magician, Rebecca Del Rio as herself, Melissa George as first Camilla Rhodes. I'm not going to explain that. You're going to have to figure <laughs> it out for yourself. Gene Bates as Irene, Dan Burbaum as Irene's companion, Laurie Hurring as Lorraine, Marcus Graham as Dar- Mr. Darby. Michael Anderson as Roke. Oh my god, I'm getting tired. There's a lot of people. Patrick Fischler as Dan. Michael Cook as Herb. Bonnie Ahrens as Bum. Gina Silva as Cookie, MC. Billy Ray Cyrus. You, yeah, yep. you heard that right. That was Billy Ray Cyrus. You got that right. As, as one of the better parts of this movie. <laughs> Hold for one second. Just saying, I'll be right back. Okay. I'll be right back. I, you know what I really appreciate about you, Steve? What's that, buddy? Is that you're willing to tolerate a man who has a family. I'm willing to tolerate it, yes. <laughs> Do you know what my son said in the car? What did your son say? He said the Godfather was just okay. What the fuck? <laughs> my wife, who is Italian, said, I'm pulling over and you can live with the turkeys from here on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I told him. I have no son. That not only did he insult his own Italian heritage, but that he has insulted America. Yes. At the same time. Yes. And now I don't know what to do. I think you know what you have to do. <laughs> it's just a matter of are you strong enough to do it? The guns are going to be taped up. You know, they have one of those old fashioned toilets where the bowl is at the top. <laughs> All right. Uh, where did I leave uh, you, off? You did, I think the last one you did was Billy Ray Cyrus. Okay, Billy Ray Cyrus is Gene, one of the best things in this movie. Vincent Castellano as Ed. Wayne Grace as Bob Booker. Rita Taggart as Lenny James. Michael Hicks as Nikki Palanza. 
Lisa Lackey as Carol, Ted Harrow as Taka, Melissa Kreider as Betty the Waitress, Kate Forster as Martha Johnson, Tony Longo as Kenny, Michael Fairman as Jason, Scott Coffey as Wilkins, and Rena Raphael as Lainey. Jesus fucking Christ. He named everybody. Yep. Except Bum. He's <laughs> <laughs> just a bum. But we don't need reminding of the bum, do we, Steve? <laughs> oh no, that's right. That's yeah, that's that character, yeah. Like mm-hmm. the, this 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 mm-hmm. the scary lady. Well, it's supposed to be a man. Well, but it's played by a woman. It's a scary lady. <laughs> I appreciate the fact that every single one of his characters are named. Yeah. There's not a single character in here that just goes as, you know, boy or whatever. <laughs> Street right? urchin number three. Yeah, no, there's Street none of that. Street urchin. Man who says one word, half clouded in shadow, who is actually a representation of of uh, one's ego collapsing in on itself as the brain dies. And you're like, what? <laughs> no, his name is Fred Tartarson. <laughs> Cue Fred. <laughs> that was that was the best, Fred. Thank you. <laughs> That's a wrap for Fred, everyone. <laughs> We don't get very many horror stories about how awful, how what an awful director he is doing. No, the most you ever hear about Lynch is like, remember, I think it was during when he was shooting the new Twin Peaks, when he he like he was pissed off one day because like he couldn't get the right materials to make to to make a prop for a scene that he was making mm-hmm. himself. It's like that's right. Like he, the director and the writer and the creator, is like on yeah. set making yeah. a prop himself, and they they couldn't give him like the right materials, and he was a little irked about that. And that's like mm-hmm. one of the most recent, you know, bad David Lynch stories. <laughs> right. You never hear like horror stories. Oh, it was awful. He grabbed a woman's ass, and then yeah. he knocked over a guy and had a temper tantrum at an actor. No. And- it's never anything like that. It's always like he's a fantastic guy and he's a great guy to work with. I think one actor once said, I had no idea what I was doing or what I was saying, but David Lynch is great. Yeah. <laughs> Music by Angelo Badalamenti. And you'll know him from Lynch films. Yeah. But also Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and Christmas Vacation. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. I remember seeing him seeing him come up in the credits for Christmas Vacation. And I was like, the dude who wrote the Twin Peaks theme? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Cinematographer by Peter Debbing. And he's also worked on things like Evil Dead 2, My Cousin Vinny. Austin Powers, and his latest film is that thing that Disney let die, The New Mutants. <laughs> edited by Mary Sweeney. That's right, the producer lady. She's edited a lot of his films, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, production company, La Femme Alain Sard. That's that French lady. Uh, Asymmetrical Productions, Babo Inc., Canal Plus, and The Picture Factory. That's how many? <laughs> That's a lot of people. That's a lot of companies. Distributed by Universal Pictures. Release date, October 12th, 2001 in the United States. Running time, 146 minutes. Budget, $15 million. Box office, $20 million. But I'm not worried about its advertising costs. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> no, they, they didn't really hype it too much. No, they didn't. It wasn't like it was being shown on Saturday morning cartoons where you're sitting there eating your cereal. And, and all of a sudden, the... <laughs> 
the commercial for Mulholland Drive will come up. <laughs> hey, kids, you want to see a movie that'll upset you for reasons you won't understand? I don't understand. It was just a shot of a lady's face, and I pooped my pants. <laughs> I don't know why it's scary, but it is. His book report, when I did my existential crisis during summer vacation. <laughs> I was playing with my G.I. Joes, and a commercial came on the TV. And it ripped away the pathetic veil of normalcy <laughs> from my life forever. <laughs> there was a sound as if a soul was being bifurcated. <laughs> All right, Steve. Yes. I don't. I mean, I do, but I don't. You don't want to go want into to the go world. Into the world of Mulholland Drive. <laughs> it's not a. It's not an altogether nice world, is it? I do, but I don't want to. <laughs> People don't do well there. Because what no one seems to realize is that all of his movies are horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really. Okay. Well, let's let's be new. Switch identities yes. or change identities. Or become different point. people or I don't know, something like that. <laughs> and run screaming where no sound comes out of our mouths. <laughs> yes. Into the world of Mulholland Drive. Steve, you start. Oh, boy. Take it away. Hey, how about this jitterbug scene, huh? At the very beginning. By the way, by the way I just want to get this yes. out right now. I would give all of my teeth to just be one person in a shot in a David Lynch film. Oh, yeah. Because here's the thing about David Lynch before we get started. Everything is important and not important at the same time. Yes. None of it is random. It's all very deliberate. None of it is random. He's very precise. And if you're in a shot, you're in a shot for a very specific reason. Because he's a complete storyteller. Not a, yeah, just put some, some, I don't know, put a salt shaker (laughs) on the table. That's fine. (laughs) <laughs> all right yeah. let's go so so yeah so we, we open be. with the with uh, a a a uh kind of freaky jitterbug. surreal jitterbug scene where it's... this is do you remember i mentioned this when we reviewed um when we reviewed shit the gene kelly movie singing in the oh rain. singing in the rain yeah there is a very weird sequence where it shows people dancing um, very much like this, mm. and I'm wondering if he wasn't inspired by that sequence. Quite possibly, yeah, quite possibly, because obviously he takes a lot of inspiration, and a lot of a, lo- a lot of his imagery Hollywood. is riffs on yeah. classic Hollywood. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's the jitterbug scene where it's it's it looks it's like the same two or three couples just you know cloned and superimposed over each other, and like yeah. there's no what I love about this sequence. There's like no sense of space. There's no sense of scale. There's no sense no. of where the floor is or how. Close Close people are the to each other. The song goes nowhere. Yeah, it's a repeated riff. It's, yeah, exactly. Over and over yeah, and over it's again. it's it's demented. It's deranged almost. It goes on mm-hmm. and on and on, <laughs> and it's just these people, the same people, multiple times in the frame, just you know, dancing their their asses off. And um, and then we also get like a superimposed shot of Naomi Watts and the two older people that she travels with that we find out later, sort mm-hmm. of like you know, looking up, gazing with wonder at way overexposed. Yeah, way overexposed and transparent. And um, yeah, and then that fades out, and we get a street sign that also doubles as the title of Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. And it, it's supposed to be car headlights. 
when we see Mulholland yeah. Drive, but it could also easily be flash bulbs from an old camera. Sure. Taking a picture of Mulholland Drive. Sure. And what's happening? What's happening, Steve? Uh, well, th- there's a um, a limousine is driving by, mm-hmm. and or no, or do we get the no? There, there's also it's it's between so this and so. There's and a the, thing as the images fade out. Yeah. Before we get to the Mulholland yeah. Drive scene, um, there's the bedroom thing. We see a very blurry scene, and we hear um, a person deeply inhaling, like through a pipe. Or this is where we get the sound design, mm. the thing that actually makes you poop your pants when you watch a David Lynch movie. <laughs> yes. Um, especially when you're watching it with headphones in the dark at night. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> no, because you take your headphones off a lot and go, fuck. Oh, my God. Okay, that was in here. <laughs> the evil is inside my headphones. <laughs> the evil's inside me now. Uh-huh. And then we get that, the... Um, after the inhalation, the scene gets a little, you know, comes into focus, and we are at what we're assuming is like a POV shot yeah. from someone in the bed, and the bed sheets are red, red yeah. right? And we keep hearing breathing, and um, we can tell that uh, uh, her body is moving and placing her head on her pillow. Yes, and then right? and then we we dissolve. To and then it fades to it fades to black, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when. We see the street sign, and, you know, there's music playing, blah, 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 whatever, and we meet What's-Her-Face, right? Yeah. Um, who is she at this point? Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't know her name yet, but she, eventually she, well, she, she, she becomes she's Rita. Rita most of the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And she's like, we're going to a party, because she's really dressed up, and there's a couple of guys, and then they pull over to the side of the road, and one of the guys got a gun. Yeah. And he's like, "We're making a stop." Yeah, or something yeah. Like that. And then, but and while they're while while they're like threatening her with a gun, some some uh, some teens mm. from the fifties. <laughs> and- we jump cut to a jarring scene of kids just going out of their fucking minds. Yes. Joy riding on the on the the road, and mm-hmm. one and one of them one of them crashes into the limo. Mm-hmm. Well, the guys get out and they're trying to force her out of the car. Right. And just as that happens, then there's the big, the big crash. The kids run into the car. The car goes over the embankment. Um, but the lady seems okay. Yeah, she seems a little dazed, but she's not. She doesn't seem injured or anything. She's also the only one that's alive. Yeah, and she kind of wanders and, into the bushes and down the hill toward the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we cut, and we're outside of Winkies. Is it Winkies? Yeah, yeah. This scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there we see two guys, uh, sitting and talking. And who, who is, who is that talking, Steve? Who's talking? Who are the two guys? That's Dan and Dan Herb. and Herb. And, uh, and, the, and is Her, Herb is telling Dan about the dream he had about the evil man in the alley. I think alley. it's Dan telling Herb about the dream. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Dan telling Herb and yeah, he, about the dream about the, the man who lives in the alley behind the diner. And he's really scared he's of the He's really man scared of the man, yeah. Super afraid. He, he don't like that and, man. And Herb goes, okay, fine, we're going to go and see him. And Dan's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he takes him around, and we're slowly panning, and then we get a jump scare. Yeah, the scary lady. And it's the scary lady all covered in mud. It's gross. And what happens to poor old Dan? Oh, he, he has a little bit of a freak out. <laughs> he mm-hmm. has a little bit of a freak Just, out. He, 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 he falls back. He's scared. Yeah, yeah. Now, some people have said that he dies. That he is literally dying. He literally has been scared to death. But we're not getting a cap to this. 
right? We're not getting, nope. uh, oh, by the way, Dan's fine. Nope. It just happens. Dan and falls then that's to it. the ground and, yeah, and Irv's like, Dan? <laughs> oh, shit, I just killed somebody. No. And we're never even ever told about what their relationship no, is. No, we get nothing. You get the idea that maybe Herb is his therapist, maybe? But he could just be a, a friend. friend or a coworker or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So then we get this scene. We're in like uh, a lobby of like it could be a bank, maybe it's a hotel, and um, the guy who we see from the back is on the phone, mm-hmm. and he says the girl is still missing, and um, then I guess he calls someone else. Yeah. What looks like a, a beat up looking apartment kitchen. And yeah, someone picks we up just the see phone like a hand says, pick up the phone. Yeah, yeah, it says talk to me, and the person who made the call says the same, and then the person in the apartment hangs up, and he makes another call, and his call goes to a wooden telephone, and um, it we see a lamp with a red lampshade and an ashtray full of dead cigarettes, and the phone rings three times, and then the scene ends. You get it? <laughs> there you go. There's the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, go, Steve. What that's happens the, after that? That's that? it. <laughs> um, do we do we do we do we cut back to Rita at some point? She or she she goes into the uh, she finds the um, the mm. apartment. She sneaks into the apartment, and then and then mm. we cut to the airport when Betty is mm. is arriving. So we're we're doing. Um, uh, I think this scene is Betty arriving at the airport. Okay, yeah, Betty shows with the two old people. Yeah. And the two old people are like, oh, well, she tells them, doesn't she tell them I won a jitterbug contest or this is a fulfillment of a dream or something like yeah, that? Yeah, she, yeah, she's, yeah, she's like the typical sort of the stereotypical like small town girl coming to Hollywood to to chase her dreams. And she is like impossibly wide eyed and idealistic. And upbeat. Very, and yeah. A, her dialogue's a little stilted. Yeah. and. The old people are kind of like, oh, well, you have a wonderful time because they seem just as happy to be in Los Angeles as she is, right? Oh, yes. We, we get that shot of them in the limo after after Betty leaves, <laughs> and they're, oh, they're awfully happy. <laughs> <laughs> they say she's going to, what does the woman say? Does the woman say it or the man say uh, it? I can't remember. They, they cut to these old people in the back of the taxi, and they have these rictus yeah. grins on their faces. Oh, yeah. And they seem very, very thrilled. And one of them says to the other, uh, is it, I hope she finds what she's looking No, she'll have a wonderful time or something along those lines. Yeah. Right? Without breaking their grins, without, like, not, they don't stop being the creepiest old people <laughs> you have ever seen. Yeah. They're like the Joker's parents. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And then we cut to uh, Adam Kesher. Right. Yeah, he's yeah he's he's like a director, and he's he's having a meeting at at an office in like a studio, and it's him and I guess his agent or in hell, I'm not sure which one it is. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Um, yeah, and it's him and his agent, I guess, and a couple of producers, and there's mm-hmm. there's some conflict because apparently the lead actress in one of his in the movie he's making dropped out, and these two mm-hmm. producer guys, the the Castigliani brothers, want this one particular girl to be in the movie mm-hmm. and Adam and how do they how do they express that uh, they they say the same all of yeah, them say the they, same they thing. say th- this, this is the girl, is the girl. Mm-hmm. this is the girl right but uh, is this where we have the meeting with the Castigliani brothers and uh, the little man from the Black Lodge uh, it happens <laughs> here at some point yeah yeah I think 
this is when it this is when it happens because they're trying to convince him, right? And they go to a this is where it starts getting confusing, guys, even for us. <laughs> because we're trying we're trying to tell someone else's dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or at least dream like story and try to keep it all together. So long as we hit the major plot beats, I think we'll be okay. Yeah, it's a little it's it's an, base... it's an iffy proposition to summarize the plot of a David Lynch movie <laughs> under the best of circumstances, but yeah, there there are there are there are certain Even his most straightforward <laughs> stories they can be a there little are, dicey. There are certain major so, beats that we'll make sure to hit. Yeah. Why couldn't you have chosen Blue Velvet? Why? <laughs> <laughs> a nice traditional movie. <laughs> Very conventional. Anyway, the Castellani brothers have to meet with, I guess, the head of the studio? I guess, yeah. Is it? I don't and know. And they're all meeting in a boardroom, but the head of the studio is in, like, a futuristic wheelchair watching everything from a remote video camera. Yes. Okay. And then someone serves one of them terrible coffee. Serves them an espresso. And apparently, yeah, apparently this has been, like, a thing with them in the past where they, they always mm-hmm. serve him coffee and he never likes the coffee. And the guy's like, I scour the world and I find the world's, I found the world's greatest cup of coffee in Italy and you're going to love it. And the guy takes a sip of coffee and then he spits it out on a napkin. And then he slowly, slowly. spits it back into his coffee yeah. cup. And what does he scream? Oh, I forget. When he gets so angry, he screams something. I can't remember what it is. I forget. But basically, they're just getting a fight over this girl. Yeah, because Adam doesn't want... We only briefly see. Yeah, yeah, Adam 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 doesn't want... Because Adam's like, you know, there are some really, like, top actresses who want this part. I don't... I've never even heard of this person. You know, I'm the director. Mm -hmm. You're not going to tell me who to put in my movie. You know, and they're like, oh, we'll see about that. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And then after this meeting is over, doesn't Adam take a golf club and destroy the castle? Yeah, he, car? he Jack Nicholson's their limo. <laughs> In the meantime, Rita has wandered. So Rita wandered from Mulholland Drive down the hill. Right. Into the apartment complex. Almost as if she's being lured back, because up on Mulholland Drive, you, you have a great view of, of Los Angeles yeah. at night yeah. with all the lights. And it's almost like a, you know, like a bug zapper drawing her back into the nightmare that is Los Angeles. <laughs> and she wanders around and she stumbles into an apartment, right? And that next morning, we see a woman who turns out to be Betty's aunt leaving, yeah, yeah. right? And she's hiding in plain sight under a table. It's one of the most ridiculous yeah. scenes in the world. There's no way Betty's aunt did not see her, <laughs> but but she's hiding in there. Right? Yeah. And we then, Betty makes it to the apartment complex, and the apartment manager is Coco, this older woman. Yeah. Right? Who kind of kind of represents old Hollywood, and she says she said starlets used to live here in the old days, um, and she shows her the apartment, and it's a gorgeous apartment. Oh yeah. Have you ever lived in Los Angeles? It's a glorious apartment. She lets her in, gives her the keys, and Betty's wandering around. Yeah. And she goes into the bathroom, and there's a naked lady in the shower. Uh-oh. And Betty, because she is so innocent and, and unassuming, just takes it for mm-hmm. granted that the naked lady in the shower is a friend of her aunt's who is staying there, too. It uh-huh. doesn't enter her mind. Oh, my God, it's a burglar or someone's broken into the apartment. She's just like, oh, you must be a friend of my Aunt Ruth, too. Right. <laughs> okay. Exactly. But she turns out that she's, like, fucked up and she's lost her memories. Yeah, she she says her name is Rita because there's a Rita Hayworth poster on the wall. And she's like, okay, I'll call myself mm-hmm. Rita. Uh, but she doesn't remember who she is. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and she has a bunch and, of money in her purse. Yeah, she's got a bunch of money in her purse and a blue... A blue, like a triangle key. key. Yeah, yeah. 
Right. Um, and so we cut back and um, we see two guys in an office. One's named Joe and the other one's named Ed. And they seem to be very friendly, right? Yeah, they're having a good laugh about something. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then Joe kills the hell out of him. <laughs> he shoots him in the head. Yeah. And while he's attempting to arrange uh, the body to make it look like a suicide, his gun goes off again and shoots through the wall. And we hear a person make an owie noise in the room next yeah, door. So Joe's like, oh, great. You've done it now, Joe. So mm-hmm. he goes to the next office and he finds this lady who he shot and he tries to strangle mm-hmm. her to death. And that doesn't work. And while he's struggling mm-hmm. with her in the hallway, the janitor sees them and he's like, and Joe tries to call him over and say, hey, I need yeah, help, help me here. take her to the hospital. <laughs> mm-hmm. They go, they fight their way back into the office and eventually he shoots her twice yeah. and she's dead. Yeah. But the janitor has come down and has seen that. So Joe shoots the janitor, but the janitor brought mm-hmm. the the janitor has brought his vacuum cleaner in. The vacuum cleaner is still running and for some reason instead of turning it off, Joe shoots the vacuum cleaner which starts unsuccessfully to, which, at first. which starts to smoke and catch fire. So Joe Joe grabs <laughs> the the black book that he was there to get from the first guy he shot in the first place mm-hmm. and hightails it out the out the fire escape. So. Yeah, but it's also, yeah, everything's gone wrong, yeah. right? He tries to wipe away fingerprints that he thinks he's left, which is fucking <laughs> <Yeah>. ridiculous. <laughs> and he grabs Ed's black book and heads out of the window, and he, he gets out. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, where we go? <laughs> oh, is this, then, oh, do okay, we see, is it so, Betty and Rita at the diner, or is there something before that? No, I think that's after is it? that. Isn't I can't it? remember. But yeah, but there's Betty. Nice. Betty and Rita are because Betty decides that she's going to help Rita find out who she really is because Rita yeah, doesn't remember anything. So they're at the diner, and the waitress has a name tag that says Diane, and Rita that triggers a memory. Oh, that's that right. Triggers a memory. Diane yeah, Selwyn. She remembers the name Diane maybe, Selwyn, but she doesn't know what that means. Maybe that is me, yeah. or maybe that is someone who knows who I am. Right. Right. But in the meantime, Betty has an audition. Oh, yes. How did she get this audition? I don't know. I think her aunt. She doesn't seem to have an agent or a manager. I think her aunt got it for her. I think that's mentioned. Or her aunt got it for her. Yeah, I think that's mentioned in dialogue that her aunt got her a part. Yeah, or got her her an audition. So at one point, Rita and Betty are doing this ridiculous fucking dialogue. Yes. Getting her ready for the thing, for the audition. And then she goes to the audition and she changes it to make it all sexy and everybody in the room is all super excited. And I'm happy because there are some great character actors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think uh, the guy who played uh, the guy who played. uh, uh, No, that's a different actor. Who am I thinking of? It's an actor that was in the original Night of the Living Dead, not Night of the Living Dead. What's the oh, one? Oh, Return with, of the Living Dead. The Return of the Living Dead. Huh? Yeah, yeah, Return of the Living Dead. I can't remember the actor's name. He's a great character actor. He was the the super bad real estate guy from Poltergeist. He's one of my favorite character actors ever. Um, he's in this yes. scene. Chad Everett's in this scene, and it's just kind of gross. It's kind of a gross scene. The director is a hack. Um, you know, he doesn't know what he's saying. But she does, a, I guess, a really great audition. Everyone's like, wow, that's great. And as she's walking out, the two ladies that walk out with her tell her, oh, this movie's never going to get made. Right? Yeah. They don't have the funding. He hasn't made a movie. And you can tell the dialogue is garbage. Yeah. But they, they say, we have, we have because you were so good, we have another uh, audition mm-hmm. we can take you to that we think you might be right for. Right. Right. 
And at some point, her uh, what's the director's name? Adam. Adam sees her at the studio, yeah. and they exchange a long look. Right? Yeah, and you're like, okay, she's supposed to be in his movie or something. Right, the show, I don't know. something's going on there. Yeah. At one point, one of the producers tells him he has to go see the cowboy. Yeah. And you're going to do what the cowboy says. And then says. we get the best scene in the movie. <laughs> I love the cowboy scene. Well, do you really? I love the cowboy scene. So he goes, he te- they, they tell him to go up to like the top of a hill and there's a corral yep. there and the cowboy will be there's there. There's a corral there. So he, mm-hmm. he pulls up, He wa- he's walking around this just utterly empty, desolate corral in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden an old light bulb flickers on. Flickers on. And then on. the cowboy is just there. And he's dressed like and he's a dressed like a cowboy, and he has. They have this really, really uncomfortable exchange, where you know Adam is being kind of a smartass, and the cowboy is just totally monotone and deadpan, but also totally menacing, mm-hmm. and you know, and is like, you need to fix your attitude, you know, and mm-hmm. and it's just it's like the lynchiest lynch scene that ever lynched. And he asked him, what did I say? Yeah. After he gets done with his, his, his diatribe, yeah. he forces the guy to repeat after himself. But basically, what's the message that he's given? The him? message is that when you go to the studio and you see a certain girl, the girl that was shown to you earlier, that's the girl that you cast in your movie. And when you see her, you say, this is the girl. Yep. And, and if you say no, you'll see me again. And if you say yes... You'll see me two more times. Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. You'll see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Mm-hmm. And then he's gone. And then he's gone. And when he leaves, the light goes yeah. out. And you're like, okay. And then I change my underwear. <laughs> there was nothing outright scary no. about it. The guy, the cowboy, isn't dressed like a bad no. guy. He doesn't have an evil face. No. But for whatever reason, the whole scene is filled with dread. It's so, it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's such a good scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so they get the address, uh, they, uh, Rita and Betty get the address for Diane Selwyn's house, right? Yes. Apartment. And so they go, oh, and we get another scene where, and we're just going to throw that in there, where Adam actually says this is the Right, world. right, right. Right. For his movie, after watching other people audition for it and bullshit and bullshit. Yeah. So they go to the apartment complex manager, <clears throat> and it's a lady, and she says, I haven't seen her in a little while. I haven't seen her in days. Um, and they convince her to let, um, to let them in to her apartment, right? Well, don't they sneak in? I think, I think Betty in sneaks in through the window, but they get into the apartment somehow. and They know. get into the apartment, and nothing happens. No, end. that's not <laughs> true, though. They get in there, and they find a gross dead There's body. There's a dead body on the bed. And Rita's screaming, but, but Betty's covering her mouth, trying to prevent her from screaming. And then that's over. Yeah, and we feel so and much they, better. Yeah, and they leave the gross apartment, and... They go back to her apartment, and then they she wants to cut all of her hair off. Right. And she says, stop it, let me do this for you. And then she puts a blonde wig on Rita, and she says, you look so different, right? You look like a different person. You look like a different person. And then it's bedtime. It sure is. They they have sex. Yes. <laughs> That's what happens. Sometimes when two, when two grown-ups like each other very much... That's yeah. right. 
And then at three o'clock in the morning, yeah, Rita's like, I gotta go somewhere. Actually, no, Rita is Rita's talking take, in her sleep. I want to take you. Somewhere. She's talking in her sleep. Yeah. She keeps saying silencio, and then she wakes up and she's like, We gotta over go over and over. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's like, Where? And she's like, We gotta go. So they get all dressed up and they take a cab to the most accursed part of Los Angeles. And they get out, and there's a theater in the end of an alleyway, yeah. right? And they enter the theater, and I think they're on the balcony level. Yeah. And there's a few other people there, and they sit down, and the show starts, and the the MC says, this is the no, what is it? The no bando. No, 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 no I bando, which is, there yeah. is no band, yeah. There is no band. There is no band. This is all an illusion. And then a guy comes out and plays the trumpet, and then he takes the trumpet away, but you can still hear the trumpet. Because right. there is no band. It's all pre-recorded. Because there is no band. Because the, the, the MC, he says it over and over. It's all, it's all on tape. There Betty's is no having, band. Yeah. Betty's having a little bit of a freak out. A little bit, yeah. And then a lady comes out, and she sings a song, and then the lady dies. <laughs> She sings actually. She sings a absolutely beautiful Spanish version of of crying the Roy Orbison yes, song. Yes, she does. Yeah, uh, Roy Orbison, who we heard in uh, Blue Velvet. Yeah. Um, and so they lady drag the lady off, and then we cut back to the apartment. They come in, and they seem to be in a good mood, mm-hmm. right? And what's inside of Rita's purse? Uh, a blue box. A blue box with How about a triangular. That? shaped keyhole right and rita pulls the box out and then all of a sudden betty is gone yes right yes she's not in the apartment and we don't want her to open the blue box for some reason <laughs> yeah i know right she fi- she 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 gets the the triangle key out of the the hat box mm-hmm. where they hit all the stuff in her purse and she opens the box and mm-hmm. and the camera it's the camera like pushes into the box and it's we like fall the, into the box the box kind of just swallows everything and yeah and it's full of inky black, not gross, terribleness. Yeah. <laughs> and it fall and it falls on the ground. Yes. And what comes out of it? Monsters come out of Monsters it. Monsters <laughs> come out of the box. Um, In the shape of the two old people. That that's Betty right. Met. They're, they're little tiny. They're little tiny people. They're little yeah. tiny people. Yeah. And um, then uh, Betty's aunt. It's daytime. Yeah. And Betty's aunt comes into the bedroom and looks around, and there's no box. And, and nobody's no there. Rita, yeah. And there's no Betty. And she goes, that's weird. And she leaves. And then we cut to the dingy apartment. Yeah, with uh, the dead body on the bed. And the but cowboy is there. He comes in through the doorway. Yeah, and he and says he says said. something like, like, time to wake up, beautiful. And then he leaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she wakes Less up. Less leaves than just disappears. Yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> and then and, and she, she wakes up, and it's well, it looks like... Betty. Um, but not Betty. No, it's not it's not Betty. No. It's Diane. It, yeah. And she looks like she's been doing crack for a month. She don't look as she's not as bright eyed as she was when she was Betty. No, she doesn't. <laughs> and she's in the gross apartment and uh the lady who we knew as the landlord lady comes in and she's picking up her stuff. Right. Like she wants her plates. Her and dishes her lamp. and stuff, yeah. And and Diane is all mean to her, right? Yeah. And then what happens? Now in this scene, we we change the way the move the the whole thing is shot, and the way he transitions between scenes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we we cut to a shot of her, you know, kind of walking around her apartment trying to make coffee, and all of a sudden she sees come what who she says is Camilla, who we used to know as Rita. Yes. 
And then he does a reverse shot where Rita has now turned into her. Right, right, right. right. And then she goes about making coffee. And uh, oh, and she know, sees the transition. key, right? She sees the, the blue key on the coffee table. Well, that's when she transitions into a memory of her and Rita tussling naked. Oh, that's couch. yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Because one of the things that the, the landlady picked up was her ashtray. She says, that's my ashtray. And she's like, take it. And she takes it. But as we see, uh, as we see Diane and Camilla tussling on the couch, the ashtray is back. And the blue key is, there is a blue key. It's not the triangular it's key. Just it's a, just yeah. a regular key. A regular key. Blue. Yeah. And this is where... Um, this is where Camilla says that she needs to end it, right? Yes. This needs to. This needs to end, and that breaks something in 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 Diane. <laughs> yeah. She gets a little forceful and kind of rapey, and she's out. You know, Camilla's like gone. Yeah. And she's like begging her not to go and trying to stop her from leaving the house and all this other stuff, and then the door slams down, and then what happens? She. Where does she go? Uh, don't transition out. Doesn't she get a phone call? Is this where she gets the phone call about the, the car coming to pick her up or something? I'm trying to remember. Because I think, because eventually Cause this... she, it's pretty soon that she, she's in the limo and we get like the redo of the opening scene, but it's her, it's Naomi Watts in the limo. And instead she of. She does get a, she does get a call from Camilla that's inviting her to the, to, to a party. To a party. Yeah. But instead right. this time it's the exact same dialogue and everything as the first scene, except instead of the car crash, when the car stops, mm-hmm. the door opens and Camilla is there. And, and she, she descends down the hill yeah and takes her hand and leads her up to this party right at adam's house and yeah at adam's house and her and adam are a thing there's a scene in there in which she was it was they were apparently in the same movie together mm-hmm. and adam has this gross scene oh yeah and excuse me where in, in the car with her on the set where he's like being all creepy and, and kissing on yeah. her and stuff in the guise of direction. Yeah, right? yeah. But now we're up at the party, and she's kissing on Adam, and then they have dinner, and then she starts kissing on some other blonde girl who was the girl who was the girl was in the Camilla picture. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning of the movie, and she does not like this at all. <laughs> no, she doesn't. She's very upset. How upset is she, Steve? She's so upset that we see her at the diner and she's hiring Joe, the bumbling hitman. That's right. <laughs> to, to take Who else out Camilla. is at the diner? Um, there's a... Um, Herb. Herb. Yeah, that's right. Herb is there. And then also there, the waitress and the waitress's name tag says Betty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he says, when I'm done, I will leave the blue key where we where we agreed I'd leave it. Right, right. right. So that explains the blue key. Right. Which yeah. means that he's killed he's killed Camilla. Yeah. Who she is hiring to kill. Yes. And now we cut to her and uh, there's a scene where she tries to masturbate. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> and I don't it, it don't go I so don't well. Think, it doesn't no, it it's doesn't, not supposed it to be like out. that. It's not supposed it's to be not, like that. It's not a good thing. No. <laughs> And the blue key is on the dining room table, and I think that is supposed to indicate to her that Camilla is dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Cut. Cut to the bum <laughs> who is behind who is behind the Winkies, and uh, it gets a bag together and puts the bag on the ground. And what comes out of the bag, Steve? Uh, the box. No. No. The old people. Oh, that's right. The the little tiny old people come out. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Meanwhile, she's back. Meanwhile, uh, Dan is back at the house. She's looking real bad. (laughs) 
and uh, you know she tried to masturbate that didn't work and then she gets a knock on the door right steve yeah and and we look at the door and instead of someone knocking at the door what comes uh, out from underneath the door <laughs> the little tiny old people and she starts screaming yeah right? she don't she don't like that and the little tiny old people turn into great big old people yeah and, and she really doesn't like that and they're trying they're coming after her they want to get her and they're chasing her and she's screaming and screaming and she jumps on the bed and she goes into her night table and she pulls out a gun and while she's screaming what happens she shoots herself in the head uh-huh and then the whole room fills up with smoke smoke and then it dissolves to the theater where they were earlier yep. and there's a lady sitting alone in the balcony and the mm. camera uh, cuts to a, a closer shot of her and she goes silencio and then that's the end of the movie yay and for some reason you don't like want to talk to anybody <laughs> <laughs> you feel icky <laughs> you're not quite sure what you watched but you're fairly certain that someone cracked open someone else's head and you got to look at it with no context yeah and you didn't like it it didn't feel good and the only things that affected you were the feelings and the dread yeah and that was it so steve uh-huh <laughs> tell me what you think about this nightmare turned real mulholland drive my life will never be the same <laughs> um it's okay so look here is here's how I approach not just this movie but all of David Lynch's movies that are that are in this the the Lynchian style right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't try to figure them out. I know that for a lot of people, treating David Lynch's movies like puzzles to be solved is interesting, and that's how they relate to them. But for me, mm-hmm. I find that I get a lot more out of them if I just sort of turn off my analytical brain and let the film wash over me. Mm-hmm. David Lynch is one of the most interesting filmmakers ever. And, and what makes him interesting to me is that his movies are not driven by the things that movies are typically driven by, certainly mainstream movies. Um, they're not usually driven by plot or even usually by characters. They're, they're, Lynch's films are driven by less tangible things. They're driven by themes and images and feelings. And, and more so than any other major filmmaker, I think that David Lynch's movies are there for us to experience. And, um, and yes, they're a lot of fun to sort through and analyze and figure out what's the symbolism of this, what does this mean. But when I watch Mulholland Drive, I'm not trying to figure it out. Like, I'm, I'm not saying to myself, what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm just receiving mm-hmm. what it's what sending out. What does that symbolize? Yeah, exactly. What does that mean? Because I know that it all means something. I know, like we said earlier, like nothing in Lynch's movies is just there randomly. It's always a I'll, very I'll, specific I'll idea. Good, yeah. I'll give you a good example. The blue box. Yeah. Some people have no idea what it means. I have interpreted it as the blue box is the reality that our main character, Diane, is keeping locked away. Right. right? The minute the blue box appears, Betty disappears. Right. And then once we open it, we go inside, and now we're in this other, you know, this other reality of what actually happened. Yeah. Diane is guilt-ridden over the fact that she had her ex-lover killed, right? Right. Um, 
but other people will have different interpretations of it or still not be able to figure out what the blue box represents. And that's fine. That's the great thing about the movie. That's your interpretation of this film, completely valid. So long as it sh- appears that you watched it. Right. It comes about, well, I think it's about giant pink bunnies that control the universe. You're like, there's nothing in this movie that, that yeah. would even indicate it. But, you know, I'm sorry. Keep going. No, it's, yeah, I, I yeah, um, I, I think it's one of Lynch's best films, if not his mm. best film. Um, I, it, it certainly, it's a perfect representation of his work and what makes him unique and what makes him a special filmmaker. It, it has the hallmarks of Lynch that we're familiar with, the surrealism, the creepiness, the celebration of the weird and the inexplicable uh, the the fascination with dreams and alternate timelines and multiple identities and we because his obsession about the mundane yes yes not just and not just the mundane but the sinister in the mundane mm-hmm. you know and because um, you know we, we we see these we see him interested in in these themes and in, in his other stuff like like Lost Highway and Twin Peaks uh, specifically mm-hmm. in terms of like alternate timelines and alternate identities and stuff um, and dreams. Uh, and sort of like ripping back the veil of, 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 of our normal conventional reality and seeing something dark and sinister and incomprehensible underneath that. That's something that Lynch loves to sort of point at. And God, Hollywood mm-hmm. is the perfect setting for that kind of story right. because that's Holly, because that's Hollywood in real life. Like you don't even mm-hmm. need, you don't even need like the weird Lynchian reinterpretation. Like Hollywood is literally the, the glittering glamorous city that if you look an inch beneath the surface, it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's of course David yep. Lynch would make a movie set there. It's perfect. It's ready made. And you know, we have his as we've mentioned a couple times already, the sound design, that incredibly deliberate and very effective use of of sound and music and also silence. Um there are and 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 the performances that are intentionally stilted and artificial the the dialogue mm-hmm. that is purposefully trite and clunky the conversations yeah. that have these excruciatingly long awkward pauses that are there on purpose that that, yep. that give everything a sense of surreality an uncanny quality it's almost like like especially that that scene early on between the two guys in the diner and and it's like it, it the the rhythms of their speech are so wrong and so awkward and it it creates this sense that you're not really watching them have a conversation whatever this is right. this this is not what it appears to be there's something wrong about this but you can't put your finger on it it's and just you know a little great wrong. about it what's great about it is it still does not feel like the writer who is also the director trying to tell you something no you know you don't get the feeling because that's where pretension lies right that's when that's what tips a movie into pretension is when you can hear the writer or the or the director trying desperately to make a statement through his characters and it's so direct that you just go you roll your eyes and you go oh jesus christ he still manages to keep this dialogue in tune with the characters that he's created. It's how he sets it that changes the tone. These are just two guys talking in a fucking Winkies. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But by the time you're getting led to the back of the Winkies, in broad daylight, you're starting to feel the tension. Yeah. Right? It's an amazing thing to do. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's absolutely. Just two guys wearing plain clothes in the middle of the day, walking to the back of a uh, of what is essentially Denny's. Yeah. Right. Sorry. I just, well, no. I, well, and, and I, think I, about I, this. Think think about how think about how scary and creepy this movie is when there are no stakes established other than nope. we want you to cast a particular actress in this movie. I mean, we know that there's something going on. We know that there's something going on with Betty and Rita. And, and eventually when we get to the final act of the movie, when they go through the box and things are different, you can kind of figure out mm-hmm. something that's going on there. But for most right. of the movie, where we see these characters that are worried about the casting in a movie, and we have that that um, um, the fucking cowboy scene where we have this this unearthly person, this cowboy, who seems like this mm-hmm. this supernatural malevolent force of a of a man but yet is also superficially totally non-threatening but is scary as hell and where does he, he materializes from nothing and he menaces this guy on the top of a hill and what does he want he wants him to cast a particular actor in a movie mm-hmm. like that's what this is all about on the surface and it's so ridiculous and yet it works it's so creepy and so scary well- Look at um, the other main powers involved in the movie business. You have the Castigliani brothers, who are almost nonverbal. Yeah. Extraordinarily strange. Mm-hmm. Dealing with a man who won't even meet with them in person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He watches everything through a glass Through a glass, window. yeah. He barely moves. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. in a chair. He just sits there. Yeah. Barely mm-hmm. even talks. Only has a couple of lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's very interesting and very telling that when he, he shows the people who are in power in Hollywood, they're all men. Mm-hmm. They're all older. None of them, not a single one of them, seems to smile no. or have any joy in what they're doing, right? And the victims of everything that they're doing, whether directly or inadvertently, are women. Yeah. They talk about the girl as if she's an object or, or a thing. Yeah, the girl. Rather, yeah. yeah, the girl. This is the girl. Like, she is the girl cog into the machine that we're going to make. Exactly. And none of them seem to recognize... I mean, when they show scenes where they're trying to make the movie, they're all old... fat. They're like old scenes on, like, sets. Yeah, exactly. And, it's like a, it's like a golden they, age of Hollywood type of movie. Yeah, yeah all of the movies are, are seem to be golden age stuff or just really bad scripts. Yeah. Um, he re- boy, he really does not like Hollywood very much, does he? No, <laughs> not judging by, by this film, certainly. Um and and so we also we, we see a lot of these qualities that we've been talking about um, embodied in the character of Betty. Yeah, and it's no wonder that and this this was the movie that really broke Naomi Watts loose and made her like a star and gave her the career oh, yeah. that she. I mean, and 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 it deservedly so. She's so good in this movie. Um, the other actors are good too, but she is the central character and does such a good job and really handles that transition so well from like the sort of moon eyed idealistic Betty and then you get to that last act where she is Diane and it's p- totally polar opposite and and you mm-hmm. and you buy it completely you know like she yeah. she goes from Betty to this broken tormented to the point of suicide shell of a person mm-hmm. Diane and 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 she makes it both work and and mm-hmm. we see just as just you know she's sort of like the central figure where we see her life as a dream and as a nightmare and mm-hmm. and they're both equally real and unreal 
you know, right. because it's not like once we go through the box that everything is normal and plausible and mundane. There's still weird shit happening. It's just of a different kind and in a slightly different style. And, yeah. you know, and the narrative, like the, the timeline is kind of fractured and kind of jumbled up because she's, you know, she, like she, we, we see her seeing the blue key and then we go back and see what the blue key means. But the movie doesn't give us any indication at first that what we're seeing takes place before the last scene. So, so you oh, know, no. it, it still has a very, a very shattered kind of dreamlike quality to it, but it's different mm-hmm. from what we've seen leading up to then. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot here. There's a lot to figure out if that's how you want to approach it. Um, mm-hmm. but I would rather treat it like a dream because that's like a tone poem. Yeah. I, I, that's another great way to describe it. Exactly. Be, because the, it feels like a dream when I watch it, it feels like I'm watching a dream and, and Lynch's work evokes the feeling of what it's like to be having a dream better than really any filmmaker that I can think of. And, and he does it through, mm-hmm. throughout his work just by summoning that the, the uncanny and the weird and the creepy and the thing that's just, it just feels a little wrong. It's like when you're having a dream and you're dreaming about something that, that maybe happened to you or you're dreaming about people that you really know in your real life or, or, or situations that you would actually encounter in your real life, but it's a dream and it's just a little off. There's just something wrong about it that wouldn't be that way if you were awake. And that's the quality that, that Lynch's films often have and it really, really comes through here really strongly. Um, it's filled with ideas and striking imagery. It's indelible and it's inexplicable or, 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 or it seems inexplicable. Um, it's mm-hmm. weird and strange and funny and menacing and beautiful. And it means whatever it means. <laughs> that is about <laughs> all I can say about it. I, whatever it means to you. Yeah, exactly. So there right. you go. That's, that's what I think. Well, I, I've always believed that, um, you know, his films exist to not necessarily tell a story but to invoke a series of feelings yes right normally we would call that tone but this goes beyond tone um what he excels at is taking the ordinary the mundane things we've seen before and imbuing them with a sense of non-reality that no other director in hollywood seems capable of doing the artist is completely aware that everything he's making is artifice. Mm-hmm. So he just takes that one step further. He takes the things that we normally would see, and he's capable of being able to set a scene with a particular tone, whether it's a sound or a soundtrack or a performance, and just kind of skew it just a little bit to make us uneasy yeah okay that's you know the way he frames his shots the way he overplays sound and music together the way he knows how to cut the way he cuts he's very deliberate in the way those these films are cut and if there's a pause in there you know it's not a mistake you know it's not because the editor didn't know what they were doing it was because that's the way he shot it and that's this is how he wants the dialogue to unfold right right I believe he is telling a story in this, but he is not going out of his way 
to explain anything about it because he wants it left open to interpretation. He admits that his own interpretation of the work is not necessarily what your interpretation of his own work. There is a level of humility that this man has to be comfortable with people to be able to interpret his work any way he wants. Mm -hmm. That means that while he is precise and that while he is very, very good at his art and he puts in exactly what he wants, he is divorced from his ego enough to allow other people to experience his film the way they're going to experience. Mm -hmm. This is what's great about his work. I went to go see this for the first time, a tiny little movie theater with four friends, and all we did was talk about the film for five hours over dinner. Oh, yeah. Right? If we had seen any other American film, even if we had seen something like Pulp Fiction or something like that, maybe we'd talk about it for maybe an hour, maybe, depending on the film. But Lynch films, you just sit down and you go, okay, what do you think? It's one of the reasons why I'm going to try to keep this short, because we could go on forever. We could go on forever about the... the um, about the uh, use, or potential use, because I'm not going to marry him to an intentional metaphor, <laughs> right? Um, of 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 meta- metaphor or the use use of shot composition or any of that stuff. Um, you can just you can dive into this and get lost in it. And the people who approach these as puzzles, that's totally valid because they can be, right? Mm-hmm. I'm guilty of it. Because you know me, I like a strong narrative, and it's important to me to figure out the narrative, and I have an interpretation of this, but it doesn't make it true, right? It doesn't make it right. It just means that I have an interpretation of it. I'm sure that there are other people who are going to like to say, no, the whole thing is a dream. I could see that. The whole thing is a dream. Other people are saying, this is what happens after you die, and this is what's happening to Diane as as her brain shuts, or whatever. That's fine. Um... And I think that his change in the way he shoots things between the Diane Selwyn part and the Betty part is very intentional. Um, And he's definitely, you know, attempting to tell at least part of a story. But that falls to the wayside when he's when what's more important to him is this is the feeling I want you to have while you're watching this. Exactly. Okay. that's why a fairly standard shot of a man dressed as a cowboy (laughs) Talking to another man who looks like he could be from the 1980s. Yes. Standing in a darkened, um, a, a darkened rodeo ranch <laughs> can be one of the scariest things you've ever seen. Oh. That's talent. And thankfully, he's limiting his talent just to his films. He's not, he's not a director for hire. No. He really is not interested in directing other people's films since Dune. And so yeah. it's like... <laughs> But I mean, bottom line, guys, you want to find out what Mulholland Mulholland Drive is? Watch it. Maybe you'll hate it. Maybe you just will be like, I need a story. That's fine. You don't have to love it. But I agree. He is going to be one of the directors that we're going to be talking about for the next 200 years. Yeah. And his films are going to be referenced, referenced, stolen from. And nobody's going to be able to do what he does. Nobody. Nobody's trying to because I don't. I think it's too scary of a, of a, of a prospect to try to ape Lynch. Yeah, would be nearly impossible because only Lynch knows what he's doing. So as a film, I think it's it is probably 
the best that he has produced in his style. It mm-hmm. has given him the most... Most of his other movie movies, with the exception of Lost Highway, um, he was not allowed to do exactly what he wanted to do, right? Um, the other films have a narrative. They have a direct narrative. Wild at Heart has a direct narrative, a start-to-finish narrative. Right. So does Blue Velvet. Um, Lost Highway... <laughs> yeah, not so much. Lost Highway is very lynchy. It has, yeah. it has, a, it has a narrative... If you're paying attention, it does have one. Um, uh, but this one was just like, I want to put down what I want to put down. And he that's exactly what he did. He just did what he wanted to do, put it out to the audience, and can went crazy. Oh, boy. And it's still, I mean, it's, it's you know, as we said at the beginning of the show, uh, it's rega- it's still regarded as one of the great films of the century so far. I mean, it's, it was, yeah. it's incredibly celebrated. Mm-hmm. So if you want to watch a film as an art form, as film itself, as an art form, right? You know, films can be is, are usually narrative storytelling. This is film as art, okay? And the great thing about it is that he's not being pretentious. He's not trying to, you know, this is about the horrors of war or some other bullshit. <laughs> this is, on, honest to God, because there are a lot of very artistic people. I mean, let me, okay, let me put it this way. The only person that we have that comes close is uh, Jodorowsky, right? Mm-hmm. But his hand is heavy. Oh, yeah. When when he does metaphor, he circles it and says, this is a metaphor. <laughs> Here's Look what at it means. These. It means something. <laughs> you know why I put so many Jesus Christ in this scene? Metaphor. <laughs> metaphor. That's a heavy hand. Yeah. Right? Compare that to Lynch. You take a shot. Just take a still shot from any of his movies. What do you see? Normal people in normal buildings just yeah. standing there. Doing superficially normal things. That's yeah. right. Doing superficially normal. Like putting on lipstick. Right, Diane Lane? <laughs> 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 so, yeah, Steve, recommend great. I recommend Absolutely. everybody... If you like film, if you want to see a different kind of film that evokes emotion rather than satisfying storytelling, this is a great movie. But if you want to search for that narrative, you can find it. It'll be yours, but and not necessarily the director's intention, but it'll be there. And uh, yeah, it's 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 super great. I love it. I love it. I lo- I I never loved more. It guys, we have been doing a lot of shit, but having to watch this twice in a row was not a chore no. at all. No. Thank you, Vimeo. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 one of my I think it probably is my favorite Lynch movie and maybe alongside the first season of Twin Peaks, probably my favorite thing that he's done in his career. Like I'm I mm-hmm. I really, really, really like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Steve. Yeah. Now it's time for you to not recommend something. Yeah. Do it. Something that I don't really, really like. So, so you always do the gimmick of of a movie that came out the same year as 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 the movie came out. I thought That's right, I would, my gimmick. but in this case, because you're going to steal it, I'm not going to steal it. My gimmick. I'm not going to steal it. I'm going to adapt it slightly in this one case because I had a I had a hard time finding a movie that I could not recommend. And then I, I realized, you know, yes, the movie was released in 2001, but it was originally shot in 1999. So I am going to not recommend another movie from 1999. And I think I probably not recommended this one at one point before, but whether I did or I didn't, who really cares? Um, Uh The movie I am not recommending 
is about as far from a David Lynch movie as you can get, both in terms of style and overall quality. It is a movie from 1999 that, like many movies in 1999, was an apocalyptic thriller about the end of the world because it was almost the year 2000, and we thought, sure, an ar- the year yeah. <laughs> an, ar- an arbitrary calendar date's going to happen, so we Not should... Not to ruin yeah. a joke that's nearly... 30 fucking years old. And and just got funnier <laughs> when they kept doing it after the year 2000. <laughs> they did it for... Conan did that bit for years after the year 2000 and didn't change anything about it, and it was hilarious. But no, the, the, the oh. movie I'm going to not recommend is a movie called The Omega Code. Oh, the Omega Code. What? The Omega Code is a bad movie made by bad people. I'll explain. It was... <laughs> It was produced by the same people who are involved with, uh, who who are in charge of the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which is an evangelical Christian TV network that exists because they bilk old people out of their retirement checks. Mm -hmm. And they decided to make a movie. And they made a movie about uh, people who find out that you can use a secret code in the Bible, which is also a real thing that some Christians believe, even though it's completely fake. Um, to 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 predict have you heard of the dictionary code that one's good too. the moby dick code is my favorite mm-hmm. pretty much any book with a lot of letters you can do this shit with but anyway it turns out to be a recipe for salted pork oh cool mm-hmm. how did you just how what's who needs a recipe don't you just put some pork in a bunch of salt and leave it Oh, Steve, I'm sorry. sweet summer I, child. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I not? Do I not understand the Just finer points of salt and pork? Just your food from the grocery store. I will. Thank you. Um, anyway, so it was produced by TBN, and uh, it's it's a it's about the end of the world and the Antichrist, played by poor Michael York, who who does his best to do something with this absolute nothing of a role and nothing of a movie. It's Michael York saying, "I can." I'll, I can make this movie worth watching. He can't, but he tries. Um, <laughs> and and also Michael Ironside, who I feel bad for. I'm like, why? Did you need the work? What are you doing here? Mm. Um, but yeah. Yes, he did. Uh, he did. He said, yeah. he, hey, hey. And I, I said, yes, I'm an actor. <laughs> it was a job. I said, yes, I don't give a shit. It's um, going to be years before he becomes Darkseid. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't even know that at the time. He didn't even need to wear. He wouldn't even need to wear makeup. Uh, just Michael Ironside just shows up, and you're like, "That must be Dark Side." <laughs> and instead of having like you know CGI Omega beams, he just kind of waves his hand, and people die. And you're like, "Yep, I'll buy that." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Save so much money, it's Michael on the, Ironside. Of course, he waves his hand, and people die. <laughs> Save so much money on the on the on the special effects budget. Just have Michael Ironside just show up <laughs> as himself. And like, look, it's Dark Side, ruler of apocalypse. Yep, that's it. That's him. <laughs> Um, no, so it's a it's a bad movie. It's a bad movie, and and just you know, if you haven't seen it already, don't watch it. I I, I, I am not recommending it. Do not watch the Omega Code, a a movie like like uh, um, Mulholland Drive, shot in 1999, but just no good. It's just no good. All right. As you guys know, I like to uh, review or not recommend a movie from the same year as the movie that we just watched. And it's 2001. And since this movie is technically considered a crime thriller, that's how they, that's how they, that's the category uh, that they put Mulholland Drive in they, as a crime thriller, they, they, thriller because there isn't an existential <laughs> dread category for films yet. They had to pick a shelf, man. They had to pick a shelf. 
makes you question your own mortality. Um, So technically, since this is a crime thriller, I decided to not recommend another crime thriller from 2001. And I will readily admit, I watched this on a plane flying back from Massachusetts, and I regret watching it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. The movie that I'm not going to recommend was directed by Frank Oz. Oh, boy. And stars Robert De Niro, Ed Norton, and Marlon Brando. Oh, no. And that movie is called The Score. Yeah. Now, the reason I don't like it is because, despite the fact that it has three really great actors in it, it's dull and pre- and predictable. It's a heist movie, and it, you see things coming from a mile fucking away. It's not worth your time unless you enjoy going, at the beginning of the movie, this is what's going to happen, and then that happens. It's not <laughs> fun. If you enjoy being right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now... One of the main reasons why I also don't like this movie is Frank Oz is a fine director, okay? But during the production, Brando wouldn't call him Mr. Oz or Frank. He would call him Miss Piggy. Oh, that's not re- That's disrespectful. Uh-huh. He wanted to and would show up on set to perform his scenes in his underwear. <laughs> oh, Marlon. And at one point, he just refused altogether to be directed by Oz. So what Oz did was he went into his trailer with a headset mic on and asked Robert De Niro to pretend that he was directing the scene by telling De Niro what he wanted, and De Niro would act it out so that Brando would finish his fucking performance (laughs) and then get his gigantic ass off the set he is not worth <laughs> the money or publicity. He's he's lucky, especially f- he's especially for this predictable piece of shit. He's lucky that Frank Oz didn't send De Niro to Brando's trailer with a baseball bat and go all untouchables <laughs> on him. So the sc- the score, don't watch it. No one even remembers it. Funny, the only the first time that De Niro and Marlon Brando ever acted together in the same scenes in a movie, utterly forgettable. And it's nothing. It's nothing. Hey, Steve. Yes, Jason. Next month is February. Oh no! Oh God! It is. Oh God! Yes, it is. Next month is when our next show will be coming oh. out, and it's, and it's it's February. And yeah, what, what holiday falls in February, oh, Steve? God, don't say Groundhog's Day, because <laughs> there's only one movie we have for that holiday. Can we do that one? No. Oh, you're talking about Valentine's Day, which means we're gonna do a romantic comedy or a romance or a romancey romantic yeah. movie movie or, or or romantic and who knows maybe one of those romantic movies will be good it's been known to We've happen been focusing on the shit maybe 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 if you choose the right one uh-huh sure put it on me we'll have a romantic movie put it on me that that will be good yeah. i'm putting it all put it on all you, on me cakes. put it all on me that's fine <laughs> i'll i'll have to just carry that for the next two weeks that's right. So now is the time where Steve chooses the next movie we're going to review, okay. and they're all romantic films. Oh, boy. Okay. And Steve has to make a blind choice. Yeah. A, B, or C. Are you okay? I'm good. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm hyping myself. I'm hyping up. I'm getting psyched okay. up. A, B, or C. Steve, please select the romantic movie that we will review in honor of St. Valentine's Day. Uh, B. He chose B. 
God. <sighs> oh, thank God he chose B. Uh, B. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, no, not happy for you, Steve. Oh, no? No? <laughs> Had you chosen A, we would have reviewed The Notebook. Okay, okay. Had you chosen C, okay. we would have reviewed Moulin Rouge. Okay. But you chose B. I did. A movie that I've been wanting to savage in front of you oh. for years now. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> the movie that we're going to review for Valentine's Day is Dirty Dancing. <gasps> we're going to do Dirty Dancing! <gasps> okay. You're going to need to hold on to that joy for a while I there. can't wait. I can't wait for you to ruin Dirty Dancing for me with your cold black heart. Hey, you get to so, be the one with the black heart this time. If <laughs> That's true. So if you want to get all the jokes or understand why we both start crying at some point and ask why we do this, then please watch Dirty Dancing before, before our next review drops. And that's it, Steve. That's it. We're done. Thank God. We're not. St- we're not stuck in a, a in a Lynchian loop <laughs> where the beginning becomes the end. <laughs> but it's a little different. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening once again. For late seating, this has been Jason Harding, and see a movie this week. And this has been Steve Shives. I hate you. I hate us both. That's supposed to be news to me. What that you hate? Steve, come on. That was the first words to you meant when we met. I know. And it's how I end every Skype call. I just thought I would put it in the show this time. It's how you end every call. <laughs> it's what I say to you. It's on what your... killed your grandmother. It's what, I, it's what I text you every year on your birthday. It's how you sign cards. <laughs> Happy birthday. I hate you. I hate us both. It's what I... De- <laughs> it's... It's what I tell the nice uh, ladies who volunteer uh, every, every two years at the elections when I go to vote. <laughs> She's, you know, well, Republican or Democrat. Okay, here you go. Thank you. And I just want you to know that I hate you. I hate us both. <laughs> at the drive through at Burger King. It's your senior quote. Yeah. Pull up to the window at Burger King. That'll be 648. Thank you. Uh, I hate you. I hate us both. (laughs) Give me my impossible Whopper. Let me get the hell out of here. We're not going to talk about the time that you volunteered at the children's ward at the hospital. (laughs) We're just not going to bring it up. They knew, you know, I told them, I I, I, I told them at at the Oh, yes. You told everyone. (laughs) I told them at the interview. They said, is there anything else that you that, that you want to say before we, we wrap this up? And I said, yes, I would just like you to know that I hate you. I hate us both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a hard time when you meet William Frakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, goodbye, Steve. It's been very nice meeting you. <laughs> Thank you. And I just want to say I hate you. I hate us both. Hopefully he'll be a big f- David Lynch fan and he'll get it. Fling yourself out the window. Oh, don't hold for hold out for hope. Do you think Frakes is a huge Lynch fan? I don't know. Maybe he is a director. That's true, and you can see you can see the influence, the Lynch, of, Lynch the influence of Lynch all through the movie yeah. that he directed. That 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 leverage episode sure has a lot of Lynchian influence. Does it? No. I would love Lynch to direct an episode of TNG. Oh my god, wouldn't I that would be amazing? Love it. 
I want him to direct the one where uh, Dana gets the gift of dreams or whatever. <gasps> oh, my God. If David Lynch... And what was that? Uh, Phantasms? Yeah, the, where, where, where Dana has the dream program. And that... Oh, yeah. my God. That'll be the perfect David Lynch episode. <laughs> Just this close-up of, of Data head, head on a pillow grasping, grasping the thing in this f- f- slow pull-out. There's a deep, resonant sound like... Either the gurglings of Satan's stomach or some sort of steam engine. (laughs) (laughs) And just like the weird, random, unexplained Lynchian touches, like maybe Picard gets like a a cup of tea from the replicator and before he drinks it, he just runs his tongue all the way around the rim. (laughs) Like for no reason. (laughs) And it's like an extreme close up. Could you imagine how long the scenes with Guinan would take? <laughs> Just have dialogue with her? Uh, oh, it would be so good. Never see the outside of the ship, nope. ever. The, the, the Enterprise suddenly has a rhythmic undersound. It's like... Vroom, 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 vroom. <laughs> that just sets you on edge for the entire episode. <laughs> I thought, I watched Star Trek to feel good. This doesn't make me feel good. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't reassuring and comforting and optimistic. <laughs> this is not good. So So let me get this straight. Anything can happen inside of this magic box room? (laughs) That's right, Mr. Lynch. (laughs) From now on, the whole series takes place in there. (laughs) I'm envisioning a number of floating faces. (laughs) And maybe a tree with organs. (laughs) Um, Imagine David Lynch in a holodeck. (laughs) I'd like a disembodied brain the size of the Milky Way galaxy. Just a bunch of shaken and broken ensigns scattered in the hallway outside of it. Don't go in there. Don't go in there. It was just a black room filled with eyes. Worf, get a hold of yourself. (laughs) I am no longer a warrior. I don't know what I am anymore. I don't know what I am anymore. Am I an actress in Hollywood? Worf! (laughs) Why did that pink tiger have mouths for eyes? What did it even mean? The only thing that's in that room is a monkey smoking a cigarette and talking about a chicken that he loves. Oh my god, yes! (laughs) You burn in hell! (laughs) Hey guys, if uh, you haven't seen that short film, go find it on Netflix. What is it called again? Oh god, I forget. Um, What is it? What Tony saw? Something something like that. Yeah, but oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. It's literally, it's, to... it's just David Lynch as a detective interviewing a monkey for like half an hour. Like, that's it. <laughs> for half an hour, a monkey who thought a chicken, he had killed a chicken. Yes. And the chicken's still alive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, is it what Jack saw? Is that it? It's what Jack yeah, saw. What that's Jack exactly saw, right. Yeah. yeah, it's only what, 10 minutes long? It's, yeah, minutes, it's, it's, a, like it's a short and it's really good. Yeah. It's great. Uh, okay, we need to stop because we can go on to this we're, Lynch We're, we're doing the thing, thing that you forever. said we could do that we weren't going to do. <laughs> Just riffing <laughs> on David Lynch over and over and over again. <laughs> I wish he had directed Return of the Jedi. Oh, me too. Wouldn't that have been amazing? You imagine what he could do with the Emperor? Oh, my God. The Emperor, the Emperor <laughs> is begging for David Lynch to direct him. <laughs> so, do I have a line here? No, you just stand there. <laughs> A little bit of a smile. That's what David wants. All right. All right. <laughs> Everything else is taken care of in post. Oh, oh all right. Very well. <laughs> so I'm just going to stand here. 
Most of the set is black. Luke is just standing there. Vader comes up. He wants to see you. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the Emperor sitting in a chair, and the whole scene lasts like 25 minutes. And you're like, I don't know what happened, but I peed down my leg, and I don't know what... (laughs) And when when, when they do have dialogue, it's like the most mundane yeah. circular like the emperor saying to Luke like well what are we going to do about this <laughs> on Tuesdays I like a bit of steak <laughs> I don't like it when they overcook the steak you understand I like it a little bit rare because there's blood on the plate and I enjoy the blood do you understand what I'm saying of course. cut to Luke nothing yeah, nothing repeat what I said <laughs> <laughs> suddenly the emperor has a big cowboy hat on <laughs> You know, young Skywalker, if you fix your attitude, you can ride in this buggy with me. It can't be anything nearly as direct. It's usually something like, My aunt said I was a malicious child. (laughs) (laughs) She smelled like violets. That's exactly right, that long pause. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. All right, we need to stop. Okay. We need to stop. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Late Seating is a Let Me Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Produced by Jason Harding. Theme music, Rollin' at Five, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more Let Me Listen podcast productions at our website at www.letmelistenpodcast.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, or just about anywhere you download podcasts. Late Seating is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support Late Seating or any of the other Let Me Listen productions for as little as $1 a month, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Let Me Listen. And thanks for listening.